This is Behind the Curtain at L.A. Opera. I'm your host, Brian Lauritsen. On this edition of the podcast, I'm joined by L.A. Opera's music director, James Conlon, who is conducting the company's current run of Puccini's Tosca. We'll talk about what make the three main characters in Tosca unique among Puccini's operas, the dramatic power of this work, and the attention to detail necessary to execute Puccini's artistic vision. Do you have any idea how many times you've conducted this opera, and uh, do you remember your first time? I remember all of that. I can still remember all of that. This happens to be the opera of which I have conducted more performances than any other. Now, I've got, by now, as, in, as you get older, you start, to, you, know, you start to say, well, I'd like to know, look at these facts. I start counting up. I love the statistics. <laughs> so um, Saturday nights, the opening nights, performance, it is the 69th time. So I will pass 70. I'll be to 74 or 75 by the time this is finished. Um, the first one of those was in 1976. I conducted two runs of it at the Met plus a tour between 1977 and 1979, and did another run at the Met about 10 years ago. Of those 68 performances at the moment, uh, well over 40 of them were at the Met. Hmm. I did two runs of it at the Paris Opera, but not when I was music director, back in the 80s at the Palais Garnier at the time. I've done a few uh, odds and ends concert performances with the Chicago Symphony, now in L.A., I didn't do it at all during my years in Cologne and Paris because I had done it so much that I wanted to do everything else. So I simply didn't <laughs> do it for a long, long time. So uh, it goes back a long time. I actually sang in the children's chorus about the age of 14, I think 13 or 14 years old once uh, when I was a kid. And I remember that, that was the end of my career. My voice had already changed, so I was singing with a falsetto. And then the day came when they made us all sing individually and they discovered <laughs> that I was singing with a falsetto. And they said, well, this is your last production. <laughs> but uh, so I, I, I was actually on stage as a kid. When I think back to those days, those, the, the Met days, for instance, in those two years, I did the run, a lot of them with Pavarotti, many, I mean like 20. Mm. Several with Placido, several with Jose Carreras. Those are great memories. Cornel McNeil and one in Paris with Gabriel Bacquier, uh, Shirley Verrett, Raina Kabevanska, uh, Hildegard Behrens. Those were great days. And I think one of the biggest, greatest experience I had was working with Tito Gobbi, not as a singer, but as a director. And he directed that production that is on the DVD that you can you can get on Decca now because they bought it from the Met a few years ago and released it after Luciano's death. I think working with Gobbi was one of the greatest things that ever happened to me. And then that was the beginning of a friendship with him, with his wife, with his daughter, with his granddaughter, with his brother-in-law, Boris Christoph, with whom I worked in the same year, and his wife. That went to the end of their li- all of their lives. And in fact, uh, Tito's daughter, Cecilia, is one of my great friends in Rome. I see her every uh, every few months. Mm-hmm. 
I learned a great deal from him. He was a great artist, and he wasn't just a great singer. He was a he was a man who knew he he knew his culture like the back of his hand. You talk to him about an opera, you didn't just learn well the notes go like this. He thought about everything: the costumes, what the what your nose should look like, what was the historical con context. He talked. He showed me a, a score of Don Carlo with Tullio Serafin, with whom he had worked in the Rome Opera in the forties absolutely full of minutiae about the staging and about the mm. costumes. He showed me a level of what is possible for a conductor to know and what a conductor is able to impart and how it is an absolutely, I would say, transporting cultural context became clear to me in the late 70s mm. and largely through the experience of that group, that generation. I was lucky enough to, you know, to be, to cross the beginning of my professional life, they were at the end of theirs or even retired. But, you know, that connection has stayed with me all these years. Mm -hmm. It seems like um, that kind of attention to detail is something that is extremely important in the Italian opera tradition, um, whether it's, you know, how you approach the the intricacies of a, of a bel canto opera, for example, or how you approach the operas of Verdi. Um, how does that translate into, into the operas of Puccini, the attention to detail, the attention to every single aspect of how each note begins and has a middle and has an end and attack and release and articulation and all of these little tiny, as you say, sort of minutiae in a composer that we don't necessarily think as much about the details in, in, in Puccini. First of all, what, I, what you're saying is absolutely true. It's also absolutely true for just about everything, not just Italian opera. Okay. I mean, it's, if it's Beethoven, it's Bach, it's Schubert. It feels, though, in Italian opera, there's something about, and maybe that's just my perception talking to various conductors um, and, and stage directors and, and people about specifically, you know, we tend to have these conversations around bel canto. So maybe I'm just thinking like, yeah, this is the Italian thing. But Well, you are right when you say, well, we don't think of Puccini as somebody you really have to pay that much attention to. You know, <laughs> so a lot of uh, extravagant emotions and you get out there and you bellow from the <laughs> stage and you bang on the orchestra sound in the pit. And, you know, everybody's, everybody is uh, self-indulgent and with all of their feelings. This could not be further than the truth, or at least the truth as I see it. Mm -hmm. To begin with, Puccini is, in my opinion, the most articulate composer in the Italian tradition when it comes to notating his intentions. Yeah far more detailed than anybody else, including Verdi, all of the bel canto composers. And I mean down to the little, you know, is this, do you slow down here or is it suddenly slower? Is there an accent? Is there a dash? Is there no accent? Do you sing a portamento here? Do you not? Um, what are the tempo relationships between different motives? He was absolutely meticulous and then, just as he was meticulous, I would say that the common tradition of singing and conducting these operas has been to meticulously ignore everything. 
<laughs> and to not even look and to not even consider uh, what is actually there. Now, one of the other influences that I had in my life, a man of whom was lived in relative obscurity most of his life, was 74 years old when I, Cornell McNeil introduced me to him because he was studying voice with him. His name was Marzolo. Strangely enough, his first name was Dick Marzolo because he was, he was uh, Venetian, but he happened to have been born in London. His parents were on a trip. His father wanted to give him an English name. Why he picked that name, I don't know, but he did. But his name was Dick Marzolo. Uh, he was born in 1900. He died in uh, 1991. I met him in 1974. Uh, was so deeply impressed by what I was... He, I, I was hearing things I had never heard mm. coming out of any teacher's uh, vision or mouth or anything. He was a great pianist. Um, he was a conductor, probably not a good one, but he was a great musician. And I met him in 1974, and I said, boy, I better pay a lot of attention because he's not going to be around very long. And then he lived to be 91. I had 17 years. I became like a family member. In fact, his son and his son's family are like some of my closest friends in New York. I learned from him how to actually read what was there. And he was, uh, and of course, he, he said to me what I just said to you about Puccini, but then he demonstrated it, and he could show you. And he could say, look, this is what everybody does but they do it without thinking or they do it because it's lazy or because it's easy or because they've simply heard it or because nobody's done it. But he showed me how to actually take a text, recite the rhythm of the text as written, and he said, when you respect the rhythms written by Puccini, you will begin to understand the meaning of the line. It will reveal itself in a different context. And he could show you what that meant. And I worked on Tosca a lot with him because, I mean, my first Tosca was in 76. I was just had started working with him. The ones at the Met, 77, 78, 79. So I worked on Tosca a lot in those years with him. And every, I mean, every inch of the score and over and over and over again. And I can assure you that I heard things after that process that not only did I hear them in Tosca, but I was able to transfer that into all the Puccini mm -hmm. and in a certain way into everything. Mm -hmm. You know, Puccini knew his pieces, or at least he hoped his pieces, would be performed after his death. The bel canto operas were written, even Verdi for the most part, were, was written with the composer supervising, at least at the beginning. And really not thinking that much about this is going to be preserved and it's going to be played forever because the, I mean, in the 19th century... Opera life was, a, was based on new works, on a constant supply of new works. It wasn't a big deal. You didn't preserve a work. It started changing, uh, partially because of the new world, possibly because of America. It started, there was, it became a canon of repeated works. And that was beginning to happen toward the end of the, uh, of the, the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. So that Puccini was, uh, you know, a part of that time and knowing that, or, or at least hoping that that was going to be the case. That's another reason to notate carefully. Same reason that Mahler wrote and notated so carefully, also because Mahler was a conductor. And he knew what it was to look at a score of Bach where there's absolutely nothing there but the notes. You don't even know the tempo from that. So he knew what that meant, and so he did a lot of thinking for the conductors. Yeah. And that puts a lot of power, maybe not the right word, but that puts a lot of responsibility, I guess, on, the, right on the conductor. That's the right word. That's the right <laughs> word. Um, and how do you uh, sort of navigate the waters of, okay, I'm the one who's responsible for translating this vision that's on the page. I'm the one who's done hours and hours and hours of study, yet, you know, famously, you can have 
opera singers, soloists who don't like a conductor to be so strongly involved in the creation. They want to do their thing. You know, how do you sort of navigate that? Well, there are all all sorts of types. I mean, yes, there are those who want you basically to accompany their (laughs) thoughts. There are great artists who have a sort of ego construction that you're there for them. But there are also great artists who are just as serious as my stated intentions. And so that's, that becomes a collaboration. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's fun. That's, that's really fun. When you have great artists who also want it to be good. And then, you know, singers, because every voice is different, you have to, you have to help them do what they can do. You don't demand, you know, somebody who sings The Queen of the Night, you're not going to ask them to sing, uh, I don't know, Ortrud, or, or uh, they're not going to sing uh, Fricka or something, you know. So that's a silly example. But what I'm saying is that since every voice is different, you have to help them do what they can do best. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's a compromise, and sometimes, you know, but when the intention is there to serve the work, something good usually comes out of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Puccini said uh, of the the play, Tosca, um, he said, I see in in this play the opera that I need with no overblown proportions, no elaborate spectacle, nor will it call for the usual excessive amount of music. What do you think he was getting at here? Is there sort of an economy of dramatic intent in this piece? Well, my guess is that he's referring, uh, we don't need showpieces, we don't need the ballet, we don't need a chorus because mm-hmm. the chorus has to sing a chorus. Uh, my, my guess is that's what, he's, what he means because his works, in fact, almost from the beginning, don't really make concessions to any of those things. I mean, he is a very concise composer. That, I assume, he would have learned by being a student uh, I don't mean literally a student of Verdi, but Verdi was a, was uh, obsessed with concision. Mm-hmm. Uh, who was not obsessed with that was Wagner. I mean, Wagner felt that as much time as it took to expose and to narrate that that was the time it took. Verdi wanted his work short, tight, and so did Puccini. In fact, Puccini's operas are fairly short. If you do the, you know, uh, the, Tosca is 20, uh, two hours of music. Uh, Bohème is slightly over two hours of music. They are short operas and they are concise. And there's no, f- there's no fat, there's no flab in Tosca. The second act is probably one of the single greatest acts in any opera in terms of its construction and its level of inspiration. It's dramatic tension, it's music. Um, I would say the same. The first act is absolutely, uh, it's the act of exposition, but you get thrown into the drama the instant it starts. You know, Puccini liked to do sort of, in his first acts, he liked to create a picture, like a postcard. And you'll see that the first act of, the, the, the drama starts usually midway in the first act of a bohème. You get uh, the young man horsing around and, you know, getting out of paying the rent. You see that the story starts when Mimi walks through the door. And there it is. But you have half an act. So you see, butterfly. You have the preparations for the wedding. You've got Pinkerton. You've got Goro. You have you have a lot of picture, uh, you know, picture painting. And then it starts when Chocho San arrives. And even if you look at the later operas, the 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 operas of the Tritico. I mean, you look at Tabarro. It's the same thing. A picture of Paris at night on a barge uh, before the drama starts. You get Angelica. You what's it like to be in a medieval convent? Then the story starts. Tosca, you get thrown into that, that. You get it thrown into your lap. I mean, Angelotti bursts through that church door, and you're in the drama. There is nothing that prepares the scene. All you have are the the motive of Scarpia to open it, 
uh, which is there, like which will become an omnipresent reminder of the power of the chief of police and how he will dominate this story. Uh, and then, and you're right in there. So Puccini, having having not done what he usually does. He paints the picture gradually. The, the church procession in the second, uh, toward the end of Act One, that's, I mean, that's a part of that picture. Another thing he loves to do is Act Three, he loves to have an intermezzo or he has some, some kind of poetic, quiet introduction. And Tosca's no different. That's, you know, Rome before dawn. And it is said, the anecdote is, and I believe it's true, that he, went, he got himself up early in the morning, three o'clock in the morning, and sat outside and notated the various bells that coming from the churches. So that, um, is it realism? No, but is it po- is it poetic? Does, uh, yes. So you get that poetic opening of Act Three in Tosca. You've had it a short one in Bohème, which is the cold winter morning uh, or before dawn um, in Paris. You have a real intermezzo in Manolesco for the orchestra, Madame Butterfly, with a magnificent uh, orchestral interlude. So he likes that. He likes that. And he does it in Tosca as well. And that's the one moment of calm, although it's a calm that's going to prepare the final tragedy. But uh, you see, so these characteristic trademarks of Puccini are there, but done so perfectly that um, I agree it's one of the, wor- it's the, it's the world's most perfect works. Hmm. If you like Puccini. <laughs> I, and I'll make you a quote. Shostakovich apparently, in his correspondence with Benjamin Britten, said, Tosca is a great opera and terrible music. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I know what he meant. I mean, if you don't like his music, well, okay, then it's terrible. You don't like it. I mean, you like it or you don't like it. Uh, there was that famous, infamous, I consider, not book by Joseph Kerman, opera's drama, but the, uh, uh, an infamous chapter on Tosca where he dismisses it completely out of hand as being a piece of trash. Mm. Uh, he was called on that many times during his life, and I, you know, I was incensed with it. I, I read it as a, as a teenager. But I do, understand, I do understand that Tosca and Puccini may not be your taste, and that's fine. But if, taste or no taste, it's artistry and it's the craftsmanship and the construction is absolutely stunning. And I am stunned by it absolutely every time I've conducted it. And as I've told you, that's 68 times so far. <laughs> Do you think the, the popularity and perhaps the, the ubiquity or the frequency with which we get performances of Tosca has anything to do with, with maybe people wanting to kind of dismiss it and say, you know, oh, it's, oh, it's, it's Tosca again. We know, we know that one. Well, not its popularity. Its popularity is, is explicable by the fact that people love it. Yeah. So popularity is because people come back to it. And that's the essence of, of classical music. You know, um, I, I saw something on Twitter a few weeks ago. Essa Pekka made a beautiful statement saying, uh, you know, classical music gives you the uh, opportunity to participate in a tradition written before you and to, and to build on that and leave something for the future. And that's exactly right. And that's what repertory is. And that's what the canon of works are. They are works that clearly call people to hear them again. And Tosca's clearly in that category. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about our three main characters. Can Scarpia and and Tosca and Cavaradossi, can they sort of be um, summarized in a a word or a phrase, each of them? Well, on the one hand, you have a classic triangular Italian opera situation where you have a tenor and a soprano in love. This is George Bernard Shaw, by the way. (laughs) Uh, 
Uh, the tenor the tenor wants to make love to the soprano, and the baritone doesn't want to let them do it. <laughs> that, okay, this is a cliche, but very but it is true. Of course, these were archetypes. These, this is what that, that's going back all the way to the beginning of the nineteenth century, and was strictly uh, there are very few exceptions to that overall rule. So that's the same. Uh, what's different about Tosca? From Chocho-san and from Mimi and what's and Mario Cavaradossi from Rodolfo the Poor Poet and Pinkerton, the sort of cad-like American naval officer. First, we see Mimi and Rodolfo see each other for the first time and fall in love. We see Chocho-san and Pinkerton see each other for the first time and we'll call it what we ever we want to call it. Uh, she's certainly in love. He certainly momentarily infatuated, but we see it happen very far away. In this case, we discover Tosca and, and Mario in the course of their already passionate relationship. And of, I would say of all those relationships, this is the most sensuous and the most... Uh, he's an artist, she's a singer. Um, they, they ooze sensuality, both of them, and, so, and you feel that in their relationship. And then you have, uh, you know, the wicked Scarpia, chief of police, and even the fact that his main profession is to be wicked <laughs> and he's a chief of police, he is also oozing with sensuality. I mean, his desire for Tosca is a, is a dynamo to the opera, and uh, it's put right out there. So that triangle, what he is able to do, what Scarpia's wager is that he can have both things he wants. He wants to arrest the original fugitive was Angelotti, who's a political prisoner. He wants to arrest Mario Cavaradossi because he is associated with the new French ideas, Voltaire and Napoleon. And, but at the same time, he wants to have Tosca in his arms. And so he, could, he can get it all done together. Now, this is an opera that has a level of violence that is much greater than all of other Puccini's works, even though there are episodes of violence. There are none that are so, uh, where violence permeates the work as much as it, it does in Tosca. And so you get, uh, you get a very violent man. You also have mutual deception all over the place. Tosca deceives Scarpia. Scarpia deceives them all. I mean, it's a very, very, very clever plot. Now, Sardou, Victoria Sardou wrote the play, you know, took it from all sorts of contemporary uh, uh, references and it's fascinating to read the play. Uh, I'm going to reread it over the weekend for fun <laughs> because there's a lot of background to a lot of this. Now, Puccini removed a great deal of it because it's incidental to the and you have to cut anyway. You can't have every fact represented. But so much of the political background has been diminished, but it's there nevertheless, and it's interesting. Why does he do that? Of course, because you can't you can't talk about ideas. You can't express ideas in music as well as you can in feelings, passions, anger, love, disappointment, um, and action. I mean, this is an opera where all, all of the protagonists are dead at the end of the opera. Uh, and so, in fact, the one guy that's standing at the end of the opera, you have a strong feeling, Spoleto, who was the minion of Scarpa, you have a feeling he's going to be dead in the next day, too, because of what happened. So um, they all end up dead. You, you know, and nobody's dying of a broken heart, although her heart is broken. But it's they're all violent deaths. She jumps off a parapet. The uh, capital is killed by a firing squad. Uh, Scarpia is stabbed to death. Uh, Angelotti commits suicide rather than to let himself be captured by the police. So, um, in that regard, I think that 
that makes it unique amongst the amongst the Puccini operas, not because there's an absence of violence in other operas, but because it is part of the fabric of the entire work. Mm-hmm. And then finally, um, how does your uh, approach, your your concept of this great work change over the course of um, 68 performances? I got that question a lot last night about the Italian Institute because I was watching a performance that I did in 1978. And my answer there is on one level the concept hasn't changed because it's based on the same impulse which is to study the music, study the composer's intention, and to try to execute that. And in that regard, it's not changed. I think, I hope, that my ability to execute that has developed in the last 40 years. I hope so. Thank you very much. I'm thrilled to be with you, as always. director of Los Angeles Opera. He's conducting the current run of Puccini's Tosca, now on stage at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, starring Sandra Radvinovsky in the title role, Russell Thomas as Cavaradossi, and several different baritones in the role of Scarpia, Ambrogio Maestri, Greer Grimsley, and Kihun Yoon. Performances continue through May 13th. You can get more information at laopera.org. This is Behind the Curtain at LA Opera. I'm your host, Brian Lauritsen. <laughs> ¶¶